0: Good morning, today's scripture reading will be found in Genesis chapter 46, and in your pew Bibles in front of you, that will be on page 39. Again, that is Genesis chapter 46, and in your pew Bibles, page 39. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba, and offered sacrifice to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob sent out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had carried them, him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Jacob, his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. And the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jenkin, Zohar, and Shaul. The son of, the Can- of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Lemi, Gershon, Kohath, Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamuel. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yab, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulon, Sirid, Elon, and Jeliel. These are the sons of Lee, Leah, whom she born to Jacob and Pateram. Together, his daughters Dinah, all together, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shunai, Ezbon, Eri, Erodai, and Ereli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Beriah, with Sarah, their sister, and the sons of Beriah, Herber, and Mealchil. These are the sons of Zilpha, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Messiah and Ephraim, whom Aseneth the daughter of Potipharah, the priest on Born to him, and the sons of Benjamin, Bila, Beecher, Ashbel, Jura, Niamen, Ehi, Rosh, Mupam, Hupam, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, fourteen persons in all. The sons of Dan, Huncham, the sons of Nefalia, Jezeel, Gunai, Jezer, and Sheelam. These are the sons of Bilha, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she Born to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons blind to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons, wives, were sixty six persons in all. And all the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were seventy. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him, and fell at his neck, and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and will say to him, My brothers in my father's household, who are in the land of Canaan, have come to me, and the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they will have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. What Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord.
1: It is a delight to, to be able to preach the word of God to a congregation who uh, feasts on it, who's hungry for it. And uh, I trust you've been enjoying the Joseph story. I certainly have. I, I suspect you have, judging from all of your comments uh, each week and how you interact with the text and the stuff that you want to talk about. I can tell that the Lord is really, uh, really helping us to Understand what he would have for us in this portion of Genesis. And it's such a captivating um, portion of the Bible, isn't it? It's got to be one of the most compelling narratives in all of scripture. Uh, we get to see just the wonderful interplay between um, just the, the drama of human relationships and circumstance and also behind it, the... The absolute sovereignty of God and his determination to accomplish all of his purposes. It's uh, it's it's been such a joy uh, to preach it and I'm a little bit sad that it's drawing to a conclusion. Although I don't want to get ahead of myself because uh, we still have some some good chapters to go. This story is is not finished yet. Um. We have more to discuss, and we have more to discuss not just about Joseph, but about Jacob. Now, somewhere along the line, we, I think, um, got to thinking that this was a story about Joseph. But I would just uh, remind you of the fact that we're in a section of Genesis that is titled, and it's subdivided by the heading, The Generations of Jacob. So this is about him. Of course, Jacob's generations include his sons, and specifically uh, the text seems to highlight Judah and Joseph. Uh, But in the first instance, all of this is about Jacob, also known as Israel. And even though he has faded somewhat into the background for the last number of chapters, as he has, let's just admit, kind of succumbed to his spiritual lethargy as he is wallowing in his sorrows. He's kind of stepped back off of center stage, but the Lord isn't finished with him yet. God has promised to make him into a great nation, a nation that's going to bear his new name, the name of Israel. And by the way, I'll mention this just right off the bat. You'll notice some intentional ambiguity in this sermon and it right from the the title onwards so i've called this sermon israel in egypt and israel there refers to both the man and also israel the nation that is just forming it's just starting to form so israel the man and israel the nation i think there's a lot of interplay Between uh, these two entities in the text and we'll try to capitalize on that this morning. Now the last chapter was a highlight of this whole narrative no doubt it was the big reveal. This is where Joseph reveals himself and his true identity to his brothers and the result as you remember was a happy reunion. It was there's all kinds of tears of joy and reconciliation. Now, as glorious as chapter 45 was, it was incomplete. There's more reconciliation and reunion that needs to take place. Remember, Joseph had two dreams. Uh, the, The sheaves, we could say the sheaves had bowed. That was his first dream. The stars have bowed. That's getting into his second dream. But there's still the matter of the sun and the moon. His parents. named chiefly his father. And you remember that when Joseph first shared this. These dreams with his family. And especially the second one. With his father. Jacob had rebuked him. And said shall I indeed come down. And bow down to the ground before you. So. Jacob, in the first place, is kind of scoffing at the idea that he would ever bow before his son. At the same time, the text says, we're told that Jacob kept the saying in mind. It kind of still nagged at him a little bit. He wondered if there wasn't more to it than, than that. He wondered if maybe he shouldn't be so dismissive. So that was way back then in chapter 37, I believe. And this whole time, that idea of the sun and the moon bowing and Jacob scoffing at the idea, that's kind of just been hanging out there like a big matzo ball. It's just hanging out there, dying to be picked up again and resolved. But so now, nine chapters later, It's time for that dream to be fulfilled. We've seen the happy reunion with the brothers, and now we get to see it with the father. For the the last few chapters, we've had a front row seat to see how the Lord has been transforming the lives of these brothers, taking them from cold-hearted, ruthless, selfish, fleshly people into a group of men who actually were sacrificing for each other and were cohesive and defending each other and helping. So we see uh, incredible transformation take place because of the work of the Lord in their lives. Well, now we get to see some, finally, at long last, some significant sanctification in the senior saint, Jacob. So let's take a closer look at this passage. And um, I want us to just structure our thoughts in the time that we have under two headings. We want to learn something about Israel's faith and then something about Israel's family. We want to see what's going on in terms of Israel's faith and then secondly, Israel's family. We'll spend the bulk of our time on this first point, which is Israel's faith. Now in the final chapter of, or the final verse, actually of the last chapter, we hear Jacob's resolve to go to see his beloved son, Joseph, who he has just learned is actually alive. And when that news was first reported to him, he was a bit numb. You'll recall. He was, he was disbelieving. He, he was a little afraid to believe that it could be true. It was almost too good to be true. But then, you know, he, we, we kind of see the wheels turning. We see him putting two and two together. You know, when the brothers start relaying all of the conversation and all of the things that Joseph had said. And then when Jacob saw all of the wagons that they had returned with that were just loaded down, with all of the good things of Egypt, well, the text says that Jacob's spirit revived and he resolved to go to Egypt. But don't, I don't want you to get the wrong impression, okay? Because this, this is not going to be just some quick cross-border trip to see a son like my, uh, like my parents are going to finally get to do. Uh, Next month, after a couple of years of not being able to do so, they're planning to come from Canada for a few days and, well, not so much to see their beloved son, but to see their beloved grandsons. Well, they'll be here for a few days and then they'll go back to Canada where where their home is, where their lives are. That is not what Jacob is planning to do. Joseph has very different instructions for his father and for his brothers. They are to come down with all of their household, all of their children, all of their children's children, all of their flocks, all of their herds, all that they have to live on. Their their command is to come and to live indefinitely in the land of Egypt to settle in a land that Pharaoh is going to allot them. So when you read in verse 1 of our chapter that Israel took his journey with all that he had, I don't want you to picture, you know, like an old man with an overnight bag. Instead, uh, Instead, I think it's better to picture someone, an old man like Jed Clampett, Who's loading up his truck and he's moving to Beverly Hills, that is, (laughs) you know, with all of his earthly belongings piled high on these wagons. He's he's bringing the whole operation and they're going to live in Egypt and then picture someone like granny, you know, who's who's actually quite apprehensive about this whole thing. Because despite the fact that Jacob is overjoyed at the prospect of, of seeing his son, his long-lost son, who, who once was lost but now is found, you you have to believe that at the same time, Jacob is full of fear. Think about it. He's, he's leaving everything that he's ever known. And he's emigrating to a foreign land, a, a pagan land. Some of, some of you know what it's like to uproot everything that you have and move to a completely different country. And then think about what country he's leaving. He's going to be leaving Canaan and it's the land that the Lord has promised to give to him as an inheritance. This is the land of promise for him and for his descendants. And it probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense to him to let something go that he's, that he's already just started to get a grip on. If, if this is my land, if this is the land I'm going to receive, why am I made to, to up and move out of it? And now think about the land that he's going to. Okay, this isn't just any country. This is Egypt. And Egypt is a place, you'll know this from studying Genesis, that historically has spelled all kinds of trouble for Jacob and his relatives his grandfather Abraham for example you'll remember got into a lot of trouble with a Pharaoh back in the day when he tried to pass off his wife as his sister again that interestingly he he came down to Egypt at that time because there was a famine in the land and then Jacob's father Isaac had been strictly prohibited by God to go down to Egypt. It's not right that the people of God would intermix and mingle with a pagan people. And so Isaac is not to go and not to intermarry with the Egyptians. So if Jacob is thinking at all, no doubt he's, he's probably wrestling with whether a move to this pagan land is God's will for him and his family. And Jacob is also likely fearful, given his whole outlook on life. You know, in the next chapter, when Pharaoh asks him how old he is, Jacob's going to respond. He'll, he'll tell him the truth. He'll say, I'm 130, but he's pretty morose about the whole thing. He, he, he will describe the days of his years as few and evil. That's been his experience. Compared to those who have gone before him, his days have been relatively few and relatively terrible. So Jacob, you know this, he's, he's known more than his fair share of tragedy, of heartache, of trouble, of relational brokenness. So it wouldn't surprise me one little bit As uh, he's traveling to Egypt, if Jacob was contemplating all of the ways that things could go horribly wrong for him once he got there. And I wonder if that's a place that you've ever been at and maybe you're there today. You know, you're you're just gripped by fear because for you in your life, it seems like Murphy's law is actually a law. It's not an exception, it's a thing. It it happens. That if something bad is gonna happen, it's gonna happen into you. And and that outlook on life, born from no doubt, difficult circumstances, kind of turns us into fearful people that are that are anxious about every little step. And for all of these reasons and For maybe more reasons, Jacob is fearful as he and his whole household set off to to Egypt. And if you've ever been there, not necessarily Egypt, but in in that place of of fear and anxiety about what might lie ahead for you and, and for your family, then you'll want to pay attention to the text to see what you ought to do when you're worried. And um, see if you can see from the, the passage how it is that the Lord strengthens and encourages us when we are afraid. Here's what you do when you're worried. You worship. When you're worried, worship. Here's what you do when you're fearful, you fall on your face. And this is exactly what Joseph does in or sorry, Jacob does in verse 1. You have to imagine that traveling with his whole family, you know, his sons, their wives, the grandchildren, you have to just imagine that these wagons are pulling off at every single rest stop from Canaan to Egypt. Right, whenever, whenever they see that pink and orange Duncan sign, they're pulling off to refill. And then whenever they see a blue and white restroom sign, they're pulling off to unload. They're you know, just constantly taking the off ramps. But there's one exit, especially that there's no way that Jacob is going to miss. And that's Beersheba. Now you, you might remember from our study that this is a, a, a place that has a lot of spiritual significance for this family. This is, a, this is a landmark in the book of Genesis. It's the place where both Abraham and Isaac built altars to the Lord God. It's a place where God would, would meet with his people to bless them and to strengthen them, to encourage them for uh, the next significant phase in their journey. So Jacob makes sure that he stops here to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And I, th- I think Jacob's example is, is particularly helpful for us because oftentimes when we're feeling anxious and, and fearful, worship is the last thing that we think we need to do. It's the last thing that we feel like doing. You know, giving thanks to God in those moments is like the furthest thing from our mind. Going going to church in those moments where we're gripped by fear and anxiety and discouragement, that feels like the complete opposite of what we would like to do, which is to... To kind of just turn into ourselves and turn inward and keep others out. And certainly, you know, not desire to come face to face with our God. But Jacob's instinct, I think, is exactly right here. The the way to fight fear and anxiety is to worship and to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Because it, it calls to mind everything that God is and everything that God has done for you up to this point. It's a wonderful way to to reset as you make your way through a difficult life. And sure enough, the the Lord God meets with Jacob and he strengthens him and he encourages him like he's done so many times before, right? When Jacob's circumstances are, are uncertain, whenever Jacob is is preparing to face off with, say, Laban or Esau, you know, at the most pivotal moments of his life, when he's most vulnerable, just at the right time, it seems, the Lord shows up and, and reveals himself to Jacob. And this time is no different. We read that God speaks to Israel in visions of the night. It seemed to be one of God's favorite ways of communicating with Jacob is to to come to him as he's sleeping or maybe not sleeping, you know, just kind of trying to stretch out on the wagon but not able to sleep. The Lord comes to him with with great tenderness, it seems to me, and with words of, of great comfort. The Lord, right off the bat, says, Jacob Jacob and there's a there's a tenderness there's an intimacy there he says Jacob do not be afraid that's that's such a a beautiful word of encouragement to hear from the Lord God how let's 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 just press into this for a minute how how can we be comforted how does the Lord comfort this man And the answer, I, I gave you a very similar answer last week, and that is he comforts Jacob with theology. Remember last week we, we talked about how, what, what is it that is protecting Joseph from bitterness and from the desire to lash out and have his pound of flesh? Hold these guys at at arm's length. What what accounts for the reconciliation and the intimacy, for the full forgiveness? And the answer there was theology. It was Joseph's understanding and clinging to the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty. Well, let's let's look at the theology that God Himself reveals about about himself that is designed to comfort and strengthen and encourage this old saint. And there's four things that I would want to point out to you. Four things about God that will comfort and encourage. And the first is that he is the patriarch's God. The patriarch's God. If you're taking notes, this will be... The first thing, the first P. We read that um, Jacob is um, veering off this off-ramp here at Beersheba because he wants to offer sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. That's at the end of verse 1. And then in verse 3, when God reveals himself, how does he reveal himself? He says, I am God. The God of your father. And you take this together with what we've said just a few minutes ago, that this is the place that God has met with Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob. It's, it's It's a very stark reminder for Isaac that he is no Johnny come lately. He has no new relationship with this living God but rather he is, he comes in a long line of, of men that God has entered into covenant with. He, he's, he's the third generation in a family that has been blessed to have had these very great and precious promises made to them and about them. And, and that think about how that must have come as comfort to this old man. That all of his life, he can look back all of his life, and he has had this God. And, and then beyond that, even before he's born, this is he is serving the same God that his father served. And before him, the same God that has been so faithful to Abraham, his grandfather. And I wonder if you've ever thought about this. I, I understand that some of you may not have that long uh, legacy of faith in your family. Um, and, and there's lots of wonderful things that the Lord c- does to compensate. Uh, he, he gives you heroes in, in church history that you can read about and, and look to and, and realize that you as a Christian come in a long line of, of, of people that have lived under the smile of God and have served God. But I do know it's the case that for for some of you, at least, you come from generations of parents and grandparents that have faithfully served the Lord. And the bigger point is that the Lord has been faithful to your family, maybe for hundreds of years. This tells you something about the faithfulness of God that he will never leave or forsake when he makes promises to people that he doesn't bail out. It's not based on uh, on our performance. It's based on his faithfulness, his covenant faithfulness. And and that, friends, that is stabilizing in your life. We, We live in a time, I don't know if you've realized this, but we, we live in a, a time of the, the trendy word is deconstruction. And that is we want to basically tear down everything that we've inherited from our parents, including their faith. And so you have a bunch of young whippersnappers who are arrogant enough to think that that they know better now and they don't have to believe the, the fairy tales that their parents have, have believed. And... That is dangerous. That is so dangerous. Because the Lord has been faithful all of these years. And, and when you disconnect yourself from such a faithful God and think that you can blaze your own trail, that's only a recipe for fear and more anxiety in the future. It's a recipe for disaster, this deconstruction. I think it would be encouraging for us to recognize that we serve a God who has been faithful throughout all generations. And one generation is able to proclaim to the next the the wonderful works of God and the words of God. And we ought to continue that legacy in our own family as well. Let me uh, hurry on to the second thing that we can receive comfort from. Something to know about God. That will help us and that is that we serve a purposeful God a purposeful God. He says do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. That's the end of verse 3 God is up to something he is accomplishing the very thing that he has set out to do and this should remind you this language, make you into a great nation, that that's not something new that God is doing. That's something that God has promised all the way back to Abraham. And and the comfort comes to know that this same God who made those promises is actively, purposefully, in the process of fulfilling what he has set out to do. Our, Our God is not like us who I don't know if you're like me and you've got lots of unfinished projects around the house. Our God is not like that. He accomplishes and his word accomplishes whatever he sets out to do. What great comfort is there in knowing that we have a God who has a purpose and not only just has desires and wishes and wills, but has the power To bring that will and those purposes to their full completion. This is why you you see the structure of the the language here. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, Jacob. Why? For there I will make you into a great nation. You, you You can have comfort. You can have strength. You don't need to be afraid because God has a purpose. And in Jacob's life um, and, and for Israel, the Lord is, is revealing here that he. this is part of his plan. This is part of his purpose for this nation that he's forming, that they would spend a time in Egypt, especially in the early embryonic stages of this nation's history. They are going to be nurtured. They're going to be fed and they're going to grow and multiply and establish an identity in in the womb, so to speak, that is Egypt. This is all going according to plan. And one of the reasons you know that is because this is what the Lord had uh, proclaimed already to Abraham, that the people would spend a time in another nation for 400 years and then afterwards be brought out. So there's, there's no surprises here. There's, there's no indication that God is just kind of making this up as he goes along. This is all according to his plan and his purpose. And the same thing is true in your life, which is why you can, you can live not in fear but in full confidence that the Lord is is uh, doing what he set out to do. And then look at this third comfort, this third thing to know about God that will be for your comfort. You see this in verse 4? I myself will go down with you to Egypt. We serve a present God. A present God, not just the God of the patriarchs, not just a purf- purposeful God, but a present God, a God who goes with us. This, this long journey, this, this, uh, this scary, uncertain journey can be made in confidence because the Lord himself, and you see the emphasis there, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. Isn't it true, friends, brothers and sisters, that, that if, if, you, if you know that the Lord is with you, that, he is, that he's right there at your right hand, not only that, but that he's, he's going before you and he's hemming you in behind and before. Isn't it true that, that you, it's almost like we're invincible. I don't mean that in a reckless way. I just mean that in a, in a faith-fueling way that if the Lord is, is with you, then first of all, what can man do to you? What kind of trouble can you ultimately get into when the Lord himself is going with you? This is, this is incredible strength and encouragement for, for Jacob. If he's wondering, should I even be going to Egypt? Isn't Egypt a pagan place? Didn't you tell my dad that, I, that we shouldn't go to Egypt When the Lord says, I myself am going with you, then then you can go in great confidence and faith. And then I love this. It doesn't end there. I paused there, but but you'll notice that the verse continues. Because the Lord doesn't promise just to go down to Egypt with them. He promises to bring him up again out of Egypt. Yeah, I just love that. He's a, he's a God of resurrection. That, that's the spatial imagery there. You go down into Egypt, but you're also with the Lord coming up out of it. And that's a nice little foretaste for the book of Exodus when the Lord brings this nation out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. This is God going before them, the presence of God, the pillar of fire, the cloud, that, that is so encouraging to know that our God is with us. And then I also want you to, to see in the fourth place that we serve a personal God, a personal God. You see this right off the bat. I pointed out, I think, in, in verse 2. That the Lord, uh, when he calls in these visions of the night, he says, Jacob, Jacob, he, he knows his name and he calls it, he doubles it in a, in a tender sort of a way. Jacob is, is not just some random guy in God's cold plan. God, God delights in him. He, he, he knows him by name. He calls him by name. And then I also see this. In what the Lord says, what God promises here at the end of verse four. He says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. But then he says, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. That's a, that's a picture of Jacob dying. Right. And, you know, sometimes not to get too morbid here, but. You know that sometimes when a person dies, th- your muscles stop working, and so if your if your muscles stop working when your eyes are open, your eyes are gonna stay open when you die, and it's uh, it's a, a tradition. Maybe you know this from westerns. You watch Gunsmoke or something, and you'll see people putting quarters on on their eyelids to kind of hold them closed. You, you want someone that's deceased, you want them to have their eyes closed to signify their, their peaceful repose rather than to have their eyes open. And so this is, this is actually a, a wonderful picture of, and, and this honor was, was typically given to the people that were closest to the deceased to, to go forth and to, to just kind of pull their eyes closed in death. And this might not seem like a big deal to you, but think about how this would be for Jacob. This is his beloved son. And he's going to be with, his beloved son is going to be right there with him on his deathbed. Can you think of a more beautiful thing? You, you older saints, is, isn't that the desire that it's when, when it's your time for the Lord to call you home, that you would be surrounded by your, your loved ones? your family, your closest friends. And, and you think, well, why, God, why would you ha- add that? Like, doesn't that seem kind of unnecessary? And also, doesn't it seem, like, wasn't it wrong that Joseph was Jacob's favorite? Like, didn't, didn't we get on his case a while ago for showing favoritism? And how this is actually like destroying this family. But do, do you see that the Lord just condescends to Jacob's desires and his heart? The, you know, the, the Lord, you, we talk about his sovereignty and his plans and his purpose. And, and we're tempted maybe to think of that as this cold distant, disconnected thing from our lives. But the truth of the matter also is that the Lord is so gracious and tender. He's such a personal God that he actually delights to give us the desires of our heart. What a wonderful thing to say to this old man. A Wonderful promise that his favorite son is going to, his own hands are going to close Jacob's eyes in a very peaceful death. This is, this is who Jacob's God is. And God is revealing himself this way to Jacob for his, for his comfort, for his peace, for his joy. And, and friends, if you, if you are n- in need of the same thing here today, of, of comfort and peace and joy, and you're tired of, of being anxious and fearful and just paralyzed by uncertainty. Then my counsel to you is to get to know your God. And discover him to be the God of your fathers. to D- Discover him to be a present God. A, a personal God. A God that has a purpose and the power to carry out all of his purposes. And be encouraged. Now, in, in the last couple of minutes that we have together, let me just point out a few things about Israel's family. I've done this successfully. I haven't left m- myself enough time to have to stumble through all of these uh, words, these names. I could not have done nearly as good a job as Noah did. So um, make sure you give Noah props for his excellent reading. Um, I, I would just want to point out to you that when you read this passage and the point of it, the point of this section where all of the family members are listed, this is who is going to Egypt. And, and look, at, look at what the, the conclusion is in verse 27. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70 and actually, if you go back and, and try to do the math, it's it's very tricky math. Even even Tom, our resident math scholar, is going to have a hard time with this one. And, and that's mainly because um, 70 is more of a stylized number. The, the, the author here is trying to help us to see, well, first of all, it's a number of completion. It's too like really complete and ideal number seven and a, and a 10 and together this is this is basically saying that that this f- this full complete unit that's who goes into egypt but 70 also i think is meant to point us back a little bit speaking of noah except i'm not talking about noah the the scripture reader I'm talking about Noah, the ark builder. And do you remember back to Genesis 10? I realize we're going back a few years now. But Genesis 10, uh, it was one of these chapters, it looked kind of similar. There's a lot of names and we wondered what was going on. And in that chapter, we had a, a table of nations, it was called. These are the descendants of Noah through his three sons. And the number of, People that were listed there that became founders of nations after the flood were 70. But then you remember what happened to those, those nations. They they were supposed to, by God's commission, go out and spread themselves into the four corners of the earth and spread God's glory into all the earth. And what did they do instead? They came together, and they assembled, and they concentrated. And they, they thought, hey, if we build a city here, if we stay here, we can actually forget God's glory. We can make glory for ourselves. We can build a name for ourselves in this tower. And you know the rest of that story. The Lord, that was a wicked thing to do. And so the Lord judged them by by scattering them and confusing their language. And so I think we're meant to see when, we, when this number 70 crops up again with this crew, I think we're meant to, I think the narrator is getting us to see that, that, that the Lord's doing something new with this family. This is like a, a new start. Maybe, maybe this will be the, the family through which... God's glory is going to be spread into the nations. Maybe this is the family that is going to be a blessing to all of the nations. So that's a, just a little bit of a, a teaser for you. It's to point us back and to raise expectations for the future. And then speaking of the future, I you know I don't usually do this and give you a spoiler, but I think it's going to be so far away that I, I can afford to do it just So there's 70 that go into Egypt. If you just skip ahead to Exodus chapter 1. I'm sorry if I'm ruining this for anybody. But Genesis 1, what we have in the first five verses basically is a a recap of our chapter, chapter 46. But then we read this in verse Well, I'll start in verse 6. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. Oh, sorry, let me back up to five. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Do you see what the Lord has done in just the space of a few pages, but which is actually a hun- some hundreds of years? Is that the Lord is busy f- creating this nation and fulfilling his promise to turn these people into a great multitude that no one can number, that are basically as much as the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky? What is it, a billion trillion? This is the mighty work of God to go from 70 to a number that can't even be counted. God is up to something big. It doesn't seem big right now. This, this new nation is like a, a delicate little embryo that's being carefully transported on wagons to... Egypt, which is, as I said, going to be like a womb for this developing nation. And you can see how this nation grows in utero and becomes increasingly strong. And the point of all this is, don't miss the point, the Lord is in real time fulfilling all of his promises. This This is our God. And then, of course, you can't speak about Jacob's family without speaking about his beloved son, Joseph. And so what we're treated to in verses 28 to 30 is the the joyful, tearful reunion. And you thought the reunion last week was wonderful with the brothers. It was, but it has nothing on this one. And the way that you can measure that I think, is by the amount of salt water that's on the scene. You can judge by the length of the embrace. And this one, between father and son, lasts for quite a while. And lots of tears are are spilled. This is a a joyful reunion between father and son. And this is deeply satisfying for, for Jacob. He says in verse 30, now I can die, basically. Now let me die since I've seen your face and I know that you're still alive. It's, it's like that was the last and, and biggest thing on Jacob's bucket list. And now that that one's accomplished, he can, he can die in peace. And it reminds you a little bit, doesn't it, of old, another old man, old Simeon, in Luke's gospel, who was hanging around. He was, he was desperately waiting for the consolation of Israel. And then one day, he saw that consolation coming into the temple. And he held that consolation in his arms. And, and Simeon, when he saw the Savior, he, he was able to say, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your words. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. This, friends, this book in general, this story, Joseph in particular, are are always pointing us forward to the, the biggest fulfillment of all of the promises that God made to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob, we're always being pointed to the, the greatest deliverance that makes having crops in the middle of a drought seem like child's play because we have a, a savior that saves us from, from sin and condemnation and brings us into restored relationship with our, our father. And so the point of this passage, what I would leave you with is as you come to to know God and as you derive much encouragement and strength from who your God is, never forget what your God has done for you in Christ. That's the greatest encouragement and strength and confidence that you could ever have is knowing that in Christ your sins are forgiven. And they are put away from you as far as the east is from the west. Trust that you are found in Christ today.